News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about bees this morning, shall we? Why? Well, for one, I think we take honey for granted. We think nothing of buying and seeing beautiful jars of honey. And yet the more I learn about the honeybee industry and all the challenges, the more I wonder how anyone is able to keep producing honey regularly, given all of the issues that are going on. The latest involves a class action lawsuit. It's a ban on importing honeybee packages from the United States that kind of got the ball rolling on this. But how is this affecting our industry and your honey? Well, Ian Grant is going to explain it to us. Ian is the president of the Ontario Beekeepers Association. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much, Simi. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. Well, tell me about this. So what is going on in the honeybee industry right now? What is this lawsuit about? Well, I'm afraid I can't talk much about the lawsuit, primarily because I'm not well aware of all the ins and outs about it. Uh, and certainly I'm not a lawyer, and I don't really want to talk about the, um, the motivations for folks who have certain uh, needs. But at the, at the end of the day, uh, what we are concerned about here in Ontario and with the Ontario Beekeepers Association, also known as the OBA, is the, the local industry. We want to ensure we have a prosperous sustainable, resilient honeybee industry here in the province. And to do that, we need to ensure that our bee stock is safe. So whether we're talking about the queens, which is the center of the hive that reproduces the hive, or we're talking about the rest of the honey honeybees in the colony, we want to make sure that we don't have pests and diseases that will impact them. There are enough out there right now. Uh, there are a lot of stressors, whether it's climate change. Uh, for beekeepers, they always have to deal with high costs of of equipment, getting low-cost uh, prices for their honey. And if you add another factor, more bee, more bee pests or diseases, that's going to impact them. So we follow the science, we follow the research, and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency over the past number of decades, they do risk assessments on issues uh, pertaining to agricultural uh, sectors. So for us, they did a risk assessment. The latest one was a few years ago. And they noted that there are some parts of the world which have certain types of diseases or pests we do not want to have here in Canada. And as a result, uh, they have looked at um, moratoriums about importing certain types of bee stock from certain areas of the world. Now, we do receive into Canada a variety of bee imports. For instance, we do have packaged bees, which are small groups of bees that mm-hmm. come in from Australia and New Zealand and Chile. They have, that happens every year. We do have queens that come in from parts of the United States, um, New Zealand, uh, again, Chile, uh, Italy. So we do have bees coming in from different parts of the world, but they're carefully screened to make sure we're not receiving or not inadvertently introducing more pests and diseases to our bees. So that's what we're concerned about here is keeping our current stock safe. Right. But if you as a beekeeper, you need to import some bees and some queens, perhaps, are, are you allowed to do that from the United States? From certain areas, as I say, the, the queens we can get from Northern California. But as an example, when they look at the screening of queens, they look for different types of things, diseases or pests. And they found, as an example, recently, uh, some of the queens out of Northern California had what they call Africanized genetics. That means you've heard about the, quote unquote, the killer bees in Southern United course, States. Yeah. Well, those are Africanized um, genetics. We don't want those up here in Canada. They're very aggressive. Uh, they're very productive. Uh, but they're very aggressive and it would be a detriment to our, our, our own bee stock here. So as an example, when they did their regular screening, they found out some of these bees, queens had bees. So they, they said, no, you're not importing. So we, 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 uh, we do import from different parts of the world. But more importantly, we do here in Ontario have our own industry. We have folks, commercial beekeepers here in the province that, that raise queens, if you will. They raise small little packages of bees called nuclear cells, nuke uh, hives, and they sell them to our local beekeepers. So what we get from that is we're supporting our local industry here in Ontario. We're providing the local beekeepers with acclimatized bee stock from Ontario. And in general, we're making ourselves more sustainable and resilient. Um, As you probably are aware, last year, in Ontario and frankly across Canada, we had a massive bee die-off. Yes. In our research we did last year of the spring of 2022, over half Ontario beekeepers said they lost over half their bees. And if you look at some of the larger bee um, uh, producers, commercial beekeepers in here in Ontario, some of them lost five, six, seven, eight thousand of their colonies, uh, you know, 10,000 colonies in total. So we had this huge die-off. 
And one of the things we did, we had to do, was we had to rely on local producers to rebuild. And that's where the sustainability and resiliency comes in. We need to be able to go to our local producers and say, hey, we have a problem here. Please help us grow. And, and if we didn't have that industry locally, we wouldn't be able to source them from anywhere else. And we wouldn't be able to have the, the bees that we need here in Ontario. So that's really where we're focused on. Right. But Ian, it does sound like the industry itself needs more communication between kind of provinces, more work to make it more resilient so that you're not thinking about having to import this from uh, New Zealand, as you mentioned, or you have to look for places in the United States where it's safe to do so. Ideally, we would be self-sufficient. Each province would be self-sufficient. And if we needed to import from other provinces, that would be the ideal world. It's not, of course. And I know some of the larger beekeeping provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, they have a great need. They have, you know, 80% of the bee population in those provinces. Um, But we all need to work together. You know, we have some fantastic producers out in Quebec. Uh, Anisette de Rocher, a bee commercial beekeeper I met last year, uh, does a fantastic job. I think he raised something like 15,000 to 20,000 queens a year and sells them across the country. So those are the, the entrepreneurs we need, I believe, locally in mm-hmm. each province that can help our local provincial beekeepers become more sustainable so they don't have to send their monies, their monies overseas uh, and they can rely on local stock, which is, again, which is acclimatized and has bred for um, the needs that we have here. Um, I'll give you another example. A few mm. years ago, a couple of decades ago here in Ontario, we had a pest called a tracheal mite. It lived in the throat, if you will, of the bees, and it would eventually kill the bee and kill the colony. So our technology transfer program here in Ontario worked very diligently uh, with the Queen Breeders Association here in Ontario to breed out this mite, uh, be able to uh, bring on genetics that would be, would be very favorable to eradicating this mite. So we don't have a big incidence, a large incidence of mite, tracheal mites here in the province. We can do that locally across Canada to make sure we don't have Africanized genetics. We, don't, we can lower the incidence of the existing varroa destructor mite, which is still prevalent. We can do all that thing, all those things locally if we invest in our local beekeepers right. uh, who are growing our stock or bee stock. In everything that you have just said to me tells me, though, that it's, again, incredibly challenging to be a beekeeper and to produce honey. You must do it because you love it. Yes, I think you can say across the board, no matter where you are in Canada, you, you, we love bees. We love the job. It's a very difficult job. Uh, the commercial beekeepers do not have a very easy time, as I mentioned, high cost for equipment, uh, labor, which they need to fly in on many occasions. It, it's a very difficult job, but it is a, you know, definitely is a, a work of love. Um, we are looking for Canadians to support. I think we can all say we have a wonderful country. We have great industries. We have a great agricultural sector. I think Canadians, we need to show the love back to our our farmers that are producing our food. Uh, If we don't have bees, we're not going to have the food quality and the food quantity that we need. As you may have heard, almost 30%, if not a little bit more of our food is is pollinated by bees. And Agricultural Canada in their 2021 assessment mentioned that honeybees in this country added, provided an added value of 7 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars to agricultural output. So if we don't have honeybees, if we don't support the honey, the honeybee, the bee keepers themselves, uh, we're not going to have the food quality, quantity, and food security will become a, a problem in this country, which we don't have oh, wow. currently. So that it, is, it, is a, it really is a, an issue that I think Canadians need to become engaged on. Um, but it is a work of love. You're right. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Cindy. I appreciate your focus on this issue today. That's Ian Grant, president of the Ontario Beekeepers Association. Yeah, beekeeping is a huge and important industry, but also has its struggles. For instance, we just kind of touched on the lawsuit there. There's a class action lawsuit. Now, it automatically includes all beekeepers in Canada who've kept more than 50 colonies for commercial purposes since the end of 2006. And they've been affected by this ban, which prevents the importation of some queen bees and honeybees from the United States, as Ian pointed out, you really have to do your homework about where you're getting them from. So for some beekeepers, it has become easier to buy their bees from New Zealand rather than just next door in the United States, hence the class action lawsuit. So we'll continue to follow along on that one, find out what happens with it. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun because you know what? It's never a dull moment in BC politics. Good morning, Vaughn. 
Morning, Simeon. Maybe just an hour to cover everything that's happened since we talked yesterday. It really is something else. No I'm kidding. not complaining. It's a very interesting job. No kidding. So this latest, we'll start with this whole BC Green situation yeah. because the the choice, first of all, of of Sanjeev Gandhi as deputy green leader was something that Sonia First Snow um, personally chose. Like she wanted him, yeah. and now it turned out it didn't even last a year. Yeah, so how much research did she do into this? Uh, this is really serious breaking news, Simi. I just checked Sonia Furstenau's Twitter feed, or X as we now call it. Uh, so about last evening, she posts that it's come to her attention that Dr. Gandhi made an inappropriate link to comparing Dr. Bonnie Henry to Joseph Mengele, I mean, really, the Nazi war crimes doctor who experimented on children and twins. Look, it's beyond the pale and that any intelligent person, medical doctor could make such a comparison or even link to such a comparison is beyond the pale. But, you know, you're right, Simi. Sonia Fersenow picked him. And she's very proud of him. In fact, if you go to her Twitter feed, and I just did, the picture at the top is Sonia Fersenow standing with uh, Dr. Rajiv Gandhi. So, you know, but you make her the guy. Point. How much research did she do? Because yeah. this wasn't a one-off, right? This wasn't one uh, time you know, that he's been he's been reposting and kind of and, and liking things yeah. that other people have been saying where you go, why, why would you do that? Um, well, again, you know, COVID controversy draws extreme comment in our society. And by coincidence yesterday, we had another vicious attack on Dr. Bonnie Henry, this time from the Conservatives. Uh, Conservative MLE, Leigh Bandman gets up in the House and demands that Health Minister Adrian Dix and the government fire Dr. Henry. Now, there's been lots of criticisms of Dr. Henry over the years. I've made some of them myself, but I don't think that you'd, I'd necessarily argue she should be fired. I think she had the best of intentions in what she was doing, Simi, but Bamman thinks she should be fired in part because of healthcare workers who were not allowed to work because they refused to get vaccinated. And Dr. Henry was eloquent on that subject. If you're uh, not, if you don't believe in vaccines and the efficacy of vaccines, you might want to think of getting a different career. And Adrian Dix yesterday in the house, people can go to the Hansard feed. You want to see Adrian Dix that is most eloquent and emotional. He just denounced this. He basically said you should be ashamed of yourself. You should recognize that the reason a person who refused to get vaccinated couldn't look after people in long-term care is because of the enormous threat to the lives of seniors if they got COVID. So, uh, you know, I, Simi, I actually think we did pretty well here in British Columbia because during the first two or three years of the pandemic, there wasn't... There was a consensus among our major political parties that people should be get vaccinated, that seniors should be protected, that, you know, the, the consensus view put forward by Dr. Henry. Yes, again, I acknowledge there were some things that didn't work out. There were some things that we didn't realize at the beginning either, and it took us a while to learn them. So, um, you know, I, Andrew Wilkinson, the now forgotten leader of the B.C. Liberals, as they were known in those days, Simi, Remember very well in the first few weeks, he said, look, I'm a medical doctor and you're not going to see me out there challenging, you know, the mainstream view of the medical establishment on what needs to happen here. And I think because he did that and our politicians generally followed that, we were spared some of the extremely divisive debate that happened in other provinces and that frustrated their ability to get people vaccinated. Initially, Simi, we we hit 95% vaccination here in this month. That's an amazing accomplishment, whatever else you think that Dr. Yeah. Henry got right and got wrong. 
I know. This one, I just can't even believe this. So I'm sure at some point we'll hear something today about this because you're right. There's a lot yeah. of questions here for Sonia first. No, but did you not vet this? Like it, this yeah. was the thing that did it for you, not all of the other attacks? Yeah. yeah you know, and Simi, you and I follow a lot of history and a lot of politics. We do. And one of the things, you, we think of the political uh, world as a spectrum, right? It goes from left to right. But one of the things about it that, you know, there is an alternative theory is, no, it's a circle. And the extreme left and the extreme right meet in the middle, down there at the bottom, and that the mainstream is at the top. So, you know, maybe this isn't the day to debate that, but I do point out that yesterday, Dr. Henry was attacked by the right, BC Conservatives, and we also had the deputy leader of the Greens lose yeah. his job uh, because of an attack that I guess you'd have to say came from the left. Oh, boy. Okay. And also, I want to talk a little bit more on that health front, too, about the illicit trade and safe supply drugs, because this has also been a hot topic. The story is getting messier here. Well, what's hot about it is we've had a story for a few weeks now that the Drug User Liberation Front lost its government contract because the government said they were breaking the law. They were acquiring drugs on the black market and distributing them to people who got safe supply. And the government, Simi, framed that when they announced it as, we just found out about this and we've dealt with it right now. However, they've got a problem because yesterday, uh, Northern Beat, Fran Yanner, a very accomplished journalist, uh, broke the story that, no, a legislature committee was told this was going on in some detail 18 months ago, and that legislature committee was chaired by Nikki Sharma, who is now our attorney general. Needless to say, I think this will be coming up in the House today. I think we'll be looking for answers on it. We don't have them yet, although the minister for mental health and addictions, Jennifer Whiteside, said she was disappointed at the use that was made of the testimony before that committee because it's, it's all on transcripts, right? Yanner broke the story, but... It's all on transcripts. The committee was told this. Yes, there were some BC liberals, as they were then known, Simi, in the room. But mm -hmm. look, the government was up to them to act. And the question that's got to go to the attorney general is, what did you do when you were told about this illicit drug trade? Uh especially now that you're attorney general. We're back with Vaughn Palmer now talking about housing. It feels like there has been something housing related to talk about for the last couple of weeks and more legislation, Vaughn. Yeah, the government is very, very active on this front. Uh, dozens and dozens of pages of legislation in the fall session dealing with housing. Another bill yesterday. This one basically tells uh, municipalities uh, that they are no longer in charge of zoning around transit lines and bus, uh, big bus exchanges. So the deal is uh, you've got a transit line going through rapid transit where there's a station You've got a big bus exchange, and I'm thinking of that one that's roughly the size of a small municipality out on uh, toward UBC. Um, you're going to have to zone around there. You're going to have to allow, never mind zoning, the province is going to do the zoning. You're going to have to allow multiple unit housing construction around those nexuses. Now, you know... That's a fair concern. We uh, go back to the previous BC Liberal government when they were under that name. And I remember Liberal ministers saying, you know, you've got a transit line uh, going by um, a whole transit station and you look down from the transit station and there's like a single family home there with a backyard and a garden. And the Liberals saying, we got to change that. They didn't change it. They talked about it. Well, the New Democrats have changed it. Transit stations are going to be, um, you know, Metro Town may be the model for the future. Uh, or South, uh, the South Marine, Southwest Marine Drive uh, on the Canada line. That's going to happen. It's in the legislation. Again, we can debate the implications of it and what councils are going to do about it and how much some residents are going to be shocked by this. But we are in a brave new world of housing under the New Democrats. And basically, the province is taking control of zoning, and they're doing it to ensure that uh, more and more multiple uh, unit construction, and now around transit lines, single-family neighborhoods, 
All of that is changing. And as I said, it is going to be a revolution in housing in British Columbia. Government has the power to pass all this legislation. And we can talk, as we have, Simi, about all the details still to come. But the basic outline is there and it is big and it is dramatic. But isn't that for then the individual municipality to decide if they want to tax, if they want to set it up so that you're taxed basically on what the property is right now? They can do that, can't they? Simi, this is uh, this is the big unexplored aspect of all this, and I'm indebted to the mayor of Burnaby, Mike Hurley, is very critical of what the government is doing on this, is he asked the question the other day, what happens to highest and best use? So I had to haul out the assessment authority's definition of highest and best use, but basically the assessment authority values a property on the basis of the highest and best use of the property. And they determine that in part by the zoning. And when the zoning changes so that suddenly your single family neighborhood is zoned for six unit multiplexes, the question that the mayor of Burnaby is asking is what happens to your assessment and then to your property taxes. We don't have answers on this. The government hasn't addressed this yet, but it's a big question out there, and I think the government is going to have to explain itself because think about it. You know, we're, we're hearing, Sammy, from people say, ah, I'm going to go on living in my single-family home. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to change, sure. and I don't want to move and all that. And they don't okay. have to. But what if your tax bill is suddenly calculated on what your property would be worth if you put six units on it. In other words, you don't have to tear your house down and build six units to get taxed. You're going to be taxed on the highest and best use. And thanks to the provincial government, your property's highest and best use now may be a triplex or a row of townhouses or, you know, six unit multiplex because you're near a transit line. Like we, some, I, I'm, This is incredible. I'm just raising this. Right. Some cities do that. Like I know Burnaby, you asked the question. I know Vancouver does that for business properties, right? For commercial properties, you're taxed on best and highest use, and essentially how many levels that you can build. You're you're taxed on all of that. But it would seem to me that if if they're going to start doing that for residential customers, well, that's that that's going to change the next municipal election. That's for sure. It is, but it's not necessarily the fault of the municipal government, and I think that's why Mayor Hurley is raising this. He's saying. He says the government hasn't thought this through at all, and he points to all the holes. And I would and I would note too that Mayor Hurley is, I'd say, an NDP leaning mayor in an NDP leading town. So he's not some, you know, right wing attack on this on property rights. He's saying let's talk about the implications. And you're right, Simi, they do it for industrial property now, but. If the assessment authority is given a free hand to apply highest and best use assessments and the zoning has changed for the neighborhood so that the property could be turned into a six unit multiplex, what's to stop the assessment authority, which is just doing its job from suddenly assessing what your single family home would be worth if you tore it down and built six units, whether or not you do that? You know, and Burnaby is an interesting case, right? Because I think other municipalities would say, well, yeah, this is all fine and good for Burnaby to raise these concerns, but they have two transit lines. Like they have things that other communities don't have and have been able to benefit from that for decades now where other communities are still waiting for any kind of transit. Uh, That's true. But the other thing I think to be said is that the mayors who are speaking out on this, and it's still a relatively small group, You know, there's lots of mayors have lined up behind the provincial government on this because they want the infrastructure money or they can read the opinion polls and they know the New Democrats are going to be around probably to enforce these rules for the next four or five years. But, you know, I would commend someone like the mayor of Burnaby who isn't afraid to be at odds with the government on this because he's raising issues that all of us should be thinking about. And I think one of the issues he's raised here, Simi, is for the government to explain um, when they impose this new zoning on all of the municipalities in BC, all 85 municipalities that are covered, are they going to put in any changes on property taxation and assessment to ensure that the suddenly all these people in single family homes who don't want to sell and don't want to move 
aren't being taxed as if they had torn their house down and built six units on the right. property. Oh, boy. Okay. More for us to talk about. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This is a new one for me, I have to admit. I haven't really thought a lot about space mining. I've mean, heard a little bit about it, but it's getting to be a, a more serious thing, even though it sounds like something straight out of a science fiction movie. This industry is becoming closer to reality, and apparently there are quite a few countries that are looking to be a part of this new space trade. So then we started thinking about that. How do we decide which areas in space are divided? Is this some new kind of free-for-all out there? Well, our contributor, Scott Chance, decided to find out. One of the things that it feels like we uh, keep hearing about is this idea of um, mining asteroids. Now, I guess for all of us people who are like sort of laymen, we think of like that movie Armageddon where they like fly into space with a mining team and drill down and and mine like literally for for precious metals and that type of thing from asteroids. Is Is that what this would actually look like? Absolutely. That is exactly what it would look like. Although the first miners will probably be robots, um, that is exactly the, the dream of our, of our potential space miners is get to an asteroid because they're filled with rare earth metals. I mean, you've heard more and more people say our first trillionaire is going to come from space from an asteroid. Um, but just we're a long way away from that reality. Okay. When you say long way away, like what do you mean like 10 years, like 100 years? Like what qualifies as a long way away? I'm thinking about 80, 60 to 80 years. Okay. I mean, we, we have not even actually, yeah, we haven't even made it to the moon to mine the moon. And that's, that's our neighbor right there. Uh, it's going to be a long time before we actually get anything back from an asteroid. So if that's the case, how do we actually know that there is valuable things worth mining up on these asteroids and, and moons and other potential planets? So we have had a, a couple of return missions. We've sent spacecraft to asteroids and they've come back with samples. And so we know um, just from you know, actual reality what's in those asteroids from those samples. We also have some really smart scientists who've been studying. We have infrared um, imagery um, where we're able to sort of look from, from here on Earth to see and make conjectures about what those asteroids are made of. And scientists will say, you know, the way the universe was started, all these materials were sort of formed together, and there's all sorts of theories about um, the, the rare Earth metals, you know, are rare on Earth because of the way we were formed, um, but they're not rare on asteroids because they didn't go through sort of this, this upheaval that Earth did. And so a lot of really smart scientists are saying, you know, not every asteroid is going to be a, a quote-unquote gold mine, but they are definitely out there. Okay. So now I think this is a question that probably comes up a lot. So say there's an asteroid up there that we discover has, like you say, a trillion dollars worth of, I don't know, graphite or, or so- something like that on it. Who is it basically like uh, whoever gets there first gets that? Like who has rights to, is it whose who's, who's space they're in? Like who's, who gets to decide who gets to go and get that, the, that valuable resource? So we actually, there, there are laws. We have an outer space treaty, which says that um, all of space and all of the things in it, the treaty calls them celestial bodies, belong to all of humanity. So, and, and anything that we extract from space must be used for the benefit of all humanity. And those are great words, right? But let's be honest, <laughs> we're not all going to get to space at the same time. And so that first mover is definitely going to have the advantage. If you get to that asteroid, even though there's a, a law that says you have to share the benefits, even though it says, and we do have a law that says a state, you know, a, a nation can't claim an asteroid, we also have laws that say if you take a resource from an asteroid, then you, then you own it and you can sell it. Interesting, because that sort of sounds like those two ideas are, are stand in controversy, like, like they stand opposed to each other, that the resources belong to all of us, but someone's allowed to take it and sell it. How does that work? So it, it, they do, and there's a lot of conflicts within these interpretations. However, when you think about shared benefits, uh, think about what we do with space right now. Every single person on Earth, even though you might not have ever launched a satellite, um, even though you don't even care, Every single person on Earth benefits from something that they, what we, we receive from space. You cannot get cash from an ATM. You cannot get gas from a gas station. 
without a satellite um, being part of that process. Um, and when we think about developing nations and, and um, uh, global south nations, um, we are sharing important information, agricultural information, weather information. All of these things benefit humanity. So when we think of the word benefit, a lot of people jump to, well, I should get a piece of the pie. Give me some of the money. Think about benefit much more broadly. Think about the benefits that we can't anticipate as yet. Think about the fact that when we get to these rare earth metals, everybody on earth is going to benefit from the fact that we don't have to mine earth anymore to get the access to those same materials. Um, Do you think that this is the way it's going to stay? Because, you know, like you say, we have... Uh, maybe 80 years before this becomes a reality. Are we going to see people, um, you know, battling over this stuff and fighting for who has claim over a certain thing and perhaps even trying to go, go into space undetected to, to mine this stuff without maybe necessarily letting people know that they're mining it? Like, is that, how complicated is this going to get? It, it is going to get complicated, but like you said, we have some time to figure out the rules and regulations. Now, what we want to see is not... Somebody, some heavy hand saying, okay, that's it. You know, if you mine it, you have to share everything, right? Because you know what? I'm a taxpayer. I don't necessarily want my government to spend money, you know, hauling off to some asteroid that we don't know anything about. I want a private company to do that. And I want investors to take that risk, not, not me, the taxpayer, right? And so if, if investors take that risk, they're not going to take the risk if we tell them, oh, if you get there and you find something, then you can't sell it. You have to share it. Right. Right. That's just that's not how the world works. So we do have to allow for some sort of uh, return on investment. Um, and, and I'm not talking, you know, are we going to have the next trillionaire? I, I don't know. Economists will say if you bring back the, that many rare earth metals, you're going to ruin the market and it's not going to be um, expensive anymore. So, you know, factor all that in. But the, the fact is, um, we should be supporting as much as we can these people who are willing to spend their own money to get there because I would dearly love to see uh, access to more rare earth metals and, and know that we're not sending children in Africa into mines to get cobalt or whatever it is that we use to keep our phones running. This is Mornings with Simi. University education is expensive enough these days, but now it sounds like it is going to be even more so. A new study forecasts that the average cost of a four-year degree and residence in Canada will be more than $100,000 in well less than 20 years. And according to these numbers, BC is also the third most affordable, well below the national average, actually. It's small comfort, though, when we're talking about these kinds of numbers, isn't it? Now, this economic forecast is from the Canadian RESP company Embark, and the president and CEO, Andrew Lowe, joins us now. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How did you gather the numbers for this forecast? Yeah, so um, we have a great calculator on Embark.ca where uh, families and students can go in and kind of uh, plan for their uh, future education and the cost of it. You can type in what province you're going to, uh, university or college, and we got data from um, the uh, 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 Education Canada, the, the, the uh, Education and Development Canada uh, statistics, as well as some of our own statistics and prediction on, on inflation in order to come up with how much it would cost. For example, our national average for next year, we anticipate a university education four-year program will cost $75,000. Okay, and is that that's at the high end, right? Like, which provinces are we talking about there? Yeah, so um, that is the national average. Uh, so it's not uh, on the high end, it's middle of the road. And as you mentioned earlier, British Columbia is, you know, uh, ranks eight out of 10 for the most expensive. And we predict British Columbia would be in the $68,495 range uh, for a four-year education, post-secondary education. Yeah, That's still expensive for a lot of people. Do do parents understand that? Do people understand how expensive it is or what they're looking at when their kids are thinking about post-secondary? We did a survey this past summer and, you know, the majority of parents couldn't predict how much it was going to cost. They don't really have an idea. And the, the problem with that is when you don't know how much it's going to be in the future, it's very difficult to, to plan right now and, and know how much you need to save, right? So this is an important data point. And that's why we make this calculator free to use on, on our website uh, so that they could plan. And it's never too late to save, we always say. So, you know, I mean, we, we can do an 18-year projection if your kids are born now, 
or just born and 18 years from now, they're going to go to post-secondary education. We have that number. But, you know, if they're 10 years old now, it's not too late to save. You can calculate, you know, my child is 10 years old. How much will it be in eight years from now? And then start saving, uh, working backwards from that. Okay. And so why is it getting so expensive? Like, do we know what those costs are? Like what is increasing over the next 20 years? Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of it is an easy answer, uh, you know, inflation, but we know that the cost of education is actually outpacing uh, inflation. As you can see uh, from our data, we're, you know, uh, over the next 18 years, we're expecting the cost to grow over 39%. Um, And there's a lot of factors that, and I would say like one of them is, um, you know, the universities are investing more uh, in terms of uh, being remaining competitive and putting more money into their programs. And and that, that costs more in in addition to uh, inflation. And so, you know, that's why, you know, post-secondary education costs are outpacing uh, inflation and projected to grow uh, in cost over 39% over the next 18 years. I mean, is that putting it just out of reach for the average family, Andrew? Yeah, you know, we don't believe so. Um, As an education savings uh, and planning company, we think um, that the earlier you start to save, um, you know, whatever you can, you know, that money grows. um, uh, And we use a, a... a savings tool called the RESP, Registered Education Savings Plan. By being registered, meaning registered with the Canadian government, um, it, it behaves, uh, it can grow tax-free. Uh, in addition to that, when you're registered with the government, they are also a 20% top-up, uh, up to a maximum of $500 every year. And we think that's a lot of money, right? So if you're able to put some money down, uh, the government will top up 20%, add 20% on top of that, up to a maximum of $500. And that's you know, your money is growing 20% right away. Like, what else, where else can you get that? Um, and when you use our calculator, you can plan how much money you need to put away in order to make a huge dent but, in post-secondary education so that it costs a lot less or, and students can exit uh, their program without having a lot of debt. The, the problem is, though, Andrew, a lot of people don't have that little even bit of extra money these days to sock away for this. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, again... Um, Planning is, is everything, um, and we say you can uh, open an account and put in as little as possible. And there's also uh, the Canada Learning Bond, and so for uh, lower-income families, they may qualify for that by uh, applying for the Canada Learning Bond on their tax return. And you can open an account, and you can get um, some government grants without having to put any money oh. uh, down at all. So that's something that's um, you know really important to uh, uh, to research. And and on our website, we explain how all that works, and you can. Again, use the calculator to figure out how much money you can get and at least kickstart your savings, right? Yeah, not a bad idea. Andrew, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on the show. That's Andrew Lowe, President and CEO of Embark. They're an RESP kind of company uh, that helps you save for your child's education. But, you know, every dollar these days is accounted for, isn't it? And that's hard. And yet you've got these numbers that show that Canadian tuition for post-secondary institutions is just going up, up and up. There's kind of good and bad news in that is that every it's going up everywhere. And yet BC is still at the lower end of the expenses. We are the third uh, most affordable. So when it comes to a four-year degree, it is something in the next 20 years expected to be something like $90,000 in BC, whereas the average for the country overall is more like a hundred thousand plus dollars for that four year degree. Isn't that a crazy amount of money? Like how can anybody afford that? How can you even start to save for something like that? It's a scary situation for families out there even thinking about that these days. This is mornings with Simi. It's a nice phrase to say that Canada has freedom of information, but do we actually have it? Information and privacy commissioners in provinces right across the country have gotten together and released a joint resolution, and they say it is time to fix a broken system so Canadians have access to information about their governments. Where do we even start? Well, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner signed that resolution, and Michael McAvoy joins us now to tell us why. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. What are the concerns that were being raised in this? Well, first of all, I think we need to uh, acknowledge that this is the 30th anniversary of freedom of information legislation in British Columbia. That was a significant event that happened 30 years ago. It was an acknowledgement that information that is with government, our governments, from provincial government to school boards to health authorities and so forth, 
Uh, that information actually belongs to the public. And the public, subject to a certain number of exceptions, which uh, pe- most people would understand, ha- have a right to that information. And uh, so what, though, has happened over time, I would say over 30 years, is that the right of access to that information has been eroded through a number of things, uh, court decisions, changes in the legislation uh, that governments, various governments have made uh, because they feel perhaps that the legislation is too transparent. All of that has combined, I think, to, uh, to, to cause us as uh, information commissioners across the country to say that we need to put the focus back where it belongs, which is the public's right to know and the public's right of access to information. This is especially important when you think about it in a time of disinformation where there's often a vacuum of information and where there is a vacuum of information, it's often the reason we see disinformation and conspiracy theories and those kinds of things emerge. So it, I think it um, is important for all of us, for governments, for citizens, uh, to ensure that uh, our governments and public bodies act with as great uh, a level of transparency as is possible. Now, I know that one of the big um, reasons that governments give for not putting out information is privacy issues. So how do we balance that? Well, there are times when privacy issues do come into play when it's uh, individual information, particularly yours or my information. An example, your health information. Clearly, you have a right to see that information from from a health in, uh, authority, but your neighbors don't and the public doesn't. There's no public interest in that. Right. But when it comes to the public uh, business of government, how governments make decisions about all of us, uh, that's something that the public has a right to know and understand. In a democracy, uh, we make choices, and we make choices based on our knowledge of how government is acting, why they act the way they do. And you can't make intelligent decisions uh, about that unless you understand uh, why government's doing what it's doing and, and how it's going about doing what it's doing. And so that's what information laws are set up to do, provide that transparency so that governments uh, of all stripes can be accountable to all of us. Has it been kind of chipped away, Michael, chipped away and chipped away to the point where it's become more challenging for us? It is more challenging and it has been chipped away. And I I think of a number of things. Uh, An example would be uh, some public bodies have set up what I would call subsidiary corporations. So spinoffs of their operations to uh, in order to transact certain businesses. Uh, A major university in the lower mainland has done that with its land dealings. This is all public land. The transactions and its business should be subject to public uh, transparency. Uh, But it's not because they've they've kind of hidden it away in a subsidiary corporation, which is which is not subject to access to information laws. So that's an example uh, where the law needs to be changed to recognize that if a public body wants to spin off some operations, good for them. There may be technical reasons to do it. But it certainly should not bar the public from understanding uh, the business that it's doing. So how can we change that? Well, it's, uh, it's government. It's, it's the will of our governments to change those things. And they change that in response to uh, what the public demands. Um, we have uh, a pretty strong uh, media and civil society in our province and a public that's very aware of these issues. And uh, when they draw those issues to the attention of their representatives, uh, they act. That's why we had changes 30 years ago. Uh, There used to be a time in this province, not that long ago, where if you wanted information from government, uh, they said no, there was no recourse. There was nothing you could do about it. They made the call. And 30 years ago, uh, the government, uh, the the, the entire legislature, in fact, unanimously decided that's not good enough. We need an independent oversight of how information is to be uh, asked for and distributed uh, to members of the public. Uh, That's where my office was created. And so I have that independent ability to make decisions. Now, uh, most of the time when the public comes to my office to complain, uh, we resolve those issues. Probably about 90% of the time, public bodies give the information or there's a good reason not to provide it. 10% of the time, approximately, those go to be adjudicated. And uh, my office deals with, uh, with those as well So to, to resolve them. So there's a mechanism that's independent. I think most citizens, if you don't know about it, to your listeners out there, uh, the office is available to, to deal with those kinds of uh, complaints and uh, resolve them to ensure that governments of all stripes remain transparent and accountable. And now here in BC, of course, we have that fee as well, right? The Freedom of Information filing fee, which was very controversial. I think it remains uh, pretty controversial. What kind of an impact have you seen from that? 
Well, the, our initial take, uh, we looked at that initially after about six months, and uh, it, was, it was probably early days to say what impact it was having, although there was, I think, some suggestion it was particularly having an impact on media applicants, which is really important because through uh, your station and uh, news gatherers across the province, using FOI legislation, um, they're able to bring to the public's attention uh, issues on our behalf. And if you're doing a big investigative story, for example, uh, these, it, it's a $10 fee, but you may have multiple applications. That can mount up at, at a certain point. So all of which is to say media applications were down. We're following it very closely. Uh, we're in the process right now, uh, probably within the next, I would say, month or two of issuing a report on government's timeliness uh, about access to information. And I think it will provide some additional insight into what impact those fees are having on our information system. Is there any province that you can point to that you go, okay, well, they're on the right track? Uh, there's some good examples across the, uh, across the country. I think my colleague, uh, Commissioner Harvey in Newfoundland and Labrador, has, uh, has oh, a, a I've set heard of about laws. This. That, yes. Yes, uh, they have a good set of laws. That, that's uh, a, a recent turn of events. Um, it was in response to some real issues about transparency and accountability in that province, and they took steps to ensure that they had uh, really, uh, um, really fit for purpose legislation. And I think there's some lessons to be to be learned from that. But you know, it's interesting in British Columbia. Thirty years ago, we were considered to really have what would be described, uh, I suppose, in grade school as A plus legislation, and it's. Since that time, uh, I don't think uh, many would think that we're still in that category, but we can be. We absolutely can be. And uh, it does take commitment on the part of government uh, to make those changes, because what they do at the end of the day is that they strengthen our democratic uh, institutions and our public bodies. Do you have any indication maybe that this government might do that? I mean, the premier is the former head of the B.C. Civil Liberties Association. I'm, I'm a, an optimist by, by I nature. I guess you have to be. I, you have yeah, to be. I, well, and I, and I am. And, and some changes have been made. And, you know, we talk with government, uh, particularly the provincial government uh, folks here, all the time about these issues, about how they can improve their systems. Um, there has been some commitment to improve those systems, and that's absolutely uh, encouraging. And uh, so we'll continue to push on the public's behalf uh, to see that uh, that work is carried through. Uh, for a number of uh, you know reasons, one is it, it reduces the wait time for people to get information, and the processing time for for applications because uh, obviously speed is important in these things. Especially, I can point to the media who are doing stories that are time urgent. I think of the things we've gone through with COVID and the uh, exposés and and uh, revealing stories that the media have brought to the public's attention about things that have happened during. Uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. Those are really important and in the public interest. And uh, we need to ensure our laws uh, reflect the importance of that. Uh, we have work to do on that front. All right, Michael, thank you. You're very welcome, Simi. That's Michael McAvoy, who's the Information and Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia. He is one of the many commissioners who also have a similar job right across the country of all the different provinces who signed a joint resolution asking governments to do more when it comes to freedom of information, saying it needs to be built up here in Canada. It needs to be strengthened that we've kind of been sliding backwards on that front, even though we have laws kind of on the books. It's being chipped away at and chipped away at, and we need to strengthen our access to information in this country. And no argument from people here in BC on that one, for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. All these years later, and we are still talking about missing and murdered women and unresolved cases along the Highway of Tears in BC, or Highway 16. The latest being 29-year-old Chelsea Qua. Now, she disappeared on October 11th. This week, her body was found. We're still waiting to get more information about that. Still missing is 28-year-old Jay Preston Raphael, who's been missing for more than eight months. Now, search and rescue teams and volunteers in the community have all been searching, but they also say there's so many more resources that are needed in that area. And that raises the very important question about 
why we are still talking about more resources for that area when we know already how dangerous it is and how dangerous it has been. Has anything changed along that stretch of road and how is the community coping with this? Well, Morgan Asaf is a respected artist from the Simshian Eagle clan from the Cassine River and joins us now to talk about that. Morgan, thank you for being here. Hi there. Um, yeah, so just to start for people that don't know the area, it's I'm basically from Prince Rupert area, and then um, the Highway of Tears stretches down to Prince George from right. there. Yeah. And there's a lot of small communities in, in between that on the highway. Um, it's a very isolated stretch of road, though, but you're right. There's lots of little small communities along there. Morgan, has anything changed in the last 10 years, Like, even though we've talked so much about the Highway of Tears? Yeah, well, I mean, I've grown up driving up and down that highway, you know, to to this day, I still drive up and down to go home and stuff um, and to visit my friends that are in those communities along the way. Um, No, as far as I've seen, it's gotten a lot worse and a lot scarier. Um, Really? Yeah, um, I I don't, I don't, like, my family doesn't want me driving there at night anymore when I'm driving on the highway. And um, I've had multiple instances every single time I'm driving of, um, you know, potentially violent situations, um, being followed, being chased, um, being yelled at by men on the road. <laughs> that That is just frightening the way you describe it there, but also the way you're saying it just makes it seem like it's a fact of life, which honestly, Morgan, makes it even sadder. It, it is sad because, um, like, I do, I do accept it as a fact because that's just the way it's been for so long and it doesn't seem to be getting better. It seems to be getting worse. What did you think when you heard the news about Chelsea? Um, I, I feel really outraged for the family and it's just devastating. Um, it's, you know, it, this was often spoken about as a thing about hitchhikers in the past. And I, I believe we're seeing more of an upturn in, um, things happening just because people are living near the highway or their reserves are near the highway. And so you think it's just as simple as that? It's that geographical connection? Well, that's what the reports that um, from like the sort of symposiums that they did for Highways of Tears back, um, oh, how many years back now? Exactly. Well, not even that long ago. It's all in the last yeah. 10, 15 years. Um, and, and so the, the profiles was mostly young women, like 14 to 25 and proximity to the highway. So whether they were walking to the gas station or they happened to live next to the highway, which many reserves are located like literally on the highway, um, it definitely is, it, it's the highway that seems to be the most dangerous. The thing about that is you would think that, you know, because it's on the highway or that there are some homes there, that it would be a little bit safer. It's not total wilderness. There are houses there. There are cars going by. Yes, that's that's true. And um, that's part of why what a lot of the... Um, the different symposiums and groups up north have called for is just like more um, community safety measures as well, um, like to make like safe spaces where people know that they could run to. Um, but a lot of things like that, as well as um, the shuttle buses that have been proposed for like a billion yeah. years, because the regular buses, even there used to be Greyhounds, but those shut down during COVID. So there's zero transportation at all. Um, like none of that has been implemented as so far um, and no funding has been put towards that. So it's kind of, yeah, it's scary. It's mostly the communities coming together to do the searching and to try and create safety for themselves. Is it harder to get attention up there for these cases? I did notice, though, that uh, Chelsea had gone missing on November 3rd. The family held a press conference and that press conference got a lot of attention. But is that what it takes now? Like you have to pretty much wave your arms and say, hey, you, you need to pay attention to this. Yeah, basically, um, that's definitely it. And um, thankfully, like the media does help for getting these cases out there. Um, And of course, you know, uh, as uh, Native people, we always, always are hoping that we can find people alive. Um, And so it's it's vital to get their photos out there, to get their names out there and to make sure that um, like society's not allowed to forget us or or just throw us away, you know. (laughs) Right. Morgan, how do you protect yourself? Um, oh, I believe in community networks. Um, so that's, that's what I do. Like when I drive the highway, I make sure that I, you know, I have my location turned on. There's people waiting for me and knowing where I'm going at all times. Um, yeah. 
I mean, that's sad that you have to do that. That's sad that you think you have to drive this vital highway. It's the only way to kind of get to and from, you know, in that area yeah. there. And those are the precautions that you have to take just as a woman driving alone. Well, and it's horrible, especially because these are our own territories. <laughs> like these are Native people's ter- traditional territories. And for us to not be safe in them is, is just a horrible thing. Are, are are those communities also acting on this? Like, what's it's, I know the provincial government clearly is not doing enough, but what are the local communities doing? Um, they've definitely been trying to pressure like the police and RCMP to do more. Um, they have created like community search groups, and um, basically, I would say that most people are spending their own money to do these things. Um, and yeah, just. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Morgan, what what do you want people to know about, you know, that area, about living up there? What what do you want people to know in other parts of the province? Um, I don't think it's specific to living up there because the MMIW epidemic is all over the place. It has a lot of challenges up there just because of, like, the lack of cell service, transportation, um, police presence, et cetera. Um, but, I mean... The, the targeting of Indigenous women is just, it's a direct result of colonization. So we kind of need to look at the root of why there's so much racism still against us and why people think that they can, that they can kill us and get away with it. Um, and, and a lot of it, you know, is because of really low solve rates in BC. Um, and Like more attention, right? So the more we pay attention to it, does that take away some of that vulnerability, do you think? <laughs> Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot more pressure on the government and RCMP to um, direct funding towards the things that need to be funded. Um, like, I think they spent like <laughs> $25 million like policing Wet'suwet'en because of the land defense there. But there's nowhere near that budget to find or to capture murderers of, of our women, you know. So I would like to see funding redirected to where it actually needs to be. That's a very good point. Very good point on that. Listen, Morgan, thanks for your time. Thank you. That's an important discussion to have. That is Morgan Asaf, who's a respected artist from the Simshian Eagle Clan uh, from the Cassine River in the Prince Rupert area. They're talking about the Highway of Tears, Highway 16, you know, from Prince George to Prince Rupert to Terrace to Prince Rupert. Uh, there, that stretch once again in the news with the death of Chelsea Kwa, who went missing at the beginning of October. Her body was found a few days ago. Her family and friends had been searching. Search and rescue had been out looking for her. But once again, here we are talking about another missing woman. In this case, the body has been found, uh, but there are still so many more questions at this point. Can you imagine still, after all this time, all these discussions, all these inquiries, all these reports, Still no adequate safety measures along that stretch of road where someone like Morgan even has to take all her own precautions because she doesn't feel safe driving on that road. That should not be happening in this day and age. This is Mornings with Simi. The parent, you want to give your child any help you can, right? You want to help them make their way, make sure they get a good start, make sure they get a go to a good school. We heard earlier about how expensive post-secondary is going to become in the years ahead. I mean, it's pretty pricey right now for so many people. And yet there are parents spending even more than that just to be able to get their child in to some universities. How? University admissions consultants. If you thought this was an American thing, think again. More and more students are going to university, so it's become very competitive to get in. And joining us now to talk about this is Michelle Cisa, award-winning journalist and contributing editor for McLean's. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. How much has this grown in Canada? Like, is this becoming a widespread thing, university admission consultants? It's hard to say exactly how widespread it is, but it's definitely growing. So I spoke to three or four admissions consultants um, who run admissions consulting companies for the story. All of them said that, um, you know, demand is really growing. And part of that is in recent years, there was this kind of decline the first year of uh COVID-19, where a lot of people deferred applying to university for a year because they didn't want to study remotely. And then there was a huge bump the next year that made admissions more competitive than ever. And uh, so that added pressure to like an already more intense admissions process. And it just seems to have kind of dumped fuel on the flames of this pressure and, and stress around applications. I mean, what does a consultant actually do? They do a lot of things. It's a pretty broad uh, 
spectrum. So some of it is helping students with their writing, their essay writing in particular. A lot of universities, as the admissions have become more competitive, have added steps to the application process. So if you applied to university 10 years ago or more, you probably just remember submitting your grades to a couple schools and getting in on the basis of your average. But now a lot of programs require students to answer these questions, either by video or by writing. And so students are obviously trying to figure out, you know, how do you how do you answer a question in a way that meets the meets the cutoff? And so admissions help them develop those writing skills and also develop the skills to set themselves apart when they're answering those questions. So developing extracurriculars, helping them think about things like, you know, some coach helps their uh, their students that they work with set up things like nonprofit organizations or like run fundraisers. So things that make them look entrepreneurial and self-starting that set them apart from their peers. It's really quite intense. Oh boy, that is that does sound intense. This also sounds like, Michelle, the kind of work that, you know, back in the day, school counselors did at, at high schools. Yeah, and I did speak to a school counselor as well, and he said, you know, he's noticed that his students are much more stressed out around this process, that while students used to apply to maybe three or four schools, uh, it's really common now for them to apply to more than 10 and that they're getting a lot of their information on social media. So they're coming to him with things they've seen on TikTok, being like, well, I saw, you know, this person did this and they didn't get into a school that I want to go to. And so it's it's still true that guidance counselors are a big source uh, for students, but I think they're getting a lot of information from their peers and from social media as well. So they're getting conflicting information and they're getting right. a lot of information. Michelle, how competitive is it out there to get into university these days? I think it really depends where you want to go. So a lot of business programs in particular, a lot of engineering programs, those are really in demand and it does seem like it's become quite a bit more challenging. So, you know, the University of Waterloo, for instance, has a computer science program and I think they only take, you know, it's like less than 10% of people who apply get in. But there are lots of schools and lots of programs that are less competitive. So in some ways, you know, it's really about where students are applying. And obviously, there's prestige or desirability attached to certain schools. Um, But definitely, if you have your eye on one of those uh, coveted programs that's at a really competitive school in a really competitive field, it is harder than ever, I think, to get in. So did you find, is this the students themselves who want this help? Or is it the parents saying, my child needs every advantage that they can get? I think it's both. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from parents, but I think a lot of students are also really anxious about their future. I mean, you know, if you've talked about this already on the program, school costs more than ever. A lot of students are graduating with more debt than ever. And I learned a really surprising statistic when I was researching the story, which is something like 40% of people with minimum wage jobs have university degrees in Canada. So that means going to university is no longer a ticket to, you know, getting a good job, having a secure future. And I think students feel a lot of stress that they have to make this choice, you know, this huge choice when they're 17 or 18 that's going to determine the rest of their life, which isn't necessarily true, but that's really how they're going into it with a lot of anxiety about their future. Everything it feels like has become so competitive, isn't it? So like now it's like a university education is now the minimum for getting into another job. Yeah. And I mean, you know, some of the measures that universities have introduced, like these kind of essay prompts to try and get a more well-rounded picture of a student than just grades, you know, in some ways they're more equitable than just looking at someone's grades. They look at the whole picture. But when some students have the means to hire a consultant and pay, you know, $175 an hour for that person to help them figure out how to write the best answer, you're not really creating a more egalitarian or you know, fair process for students who don't have those means. And I think that's a concern as well. Right. Because now if you're separating that, that, that's obviously going to be a difference between somebody who worked on it themselves and you can actually find out what their skills are versus somebody who did it with a lot of help. Yeah. Or even somebody who has, you know, like five or 10 hours a week to devote to coaching or to like setting up a nonprofit organization to burnish their resume. It's uh you know, a lot of students have to work part-time jobs. They they have to take care of younger siblings. Like, they don't have the time and resources to do this. And so I think that's that's concerning as well. If you think of university as a place where, you know, any student who has the potential should be able to thrive and, and have access to a great program, um, it's definitely becoming more competitive in a way that I think favors students who have the resources to make themselves look 
really good on paper. Sure sounds like it. Michelle, thanks so much for that this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. That's Michelle Sisa, who's an award-winning journalist and contributing editor for McLean's. Now, McLean's does a lot of work on kind of universities. They do the university guide that they put out every year. I think their latest one is out right now. And there's some really interesting stats that they have in there. For instance, they told us that there were 2.7 million post-secondary students in Canada in 2020. That is an 81% increase in the number of students enrolled full-time since 2000. That is a huge increase in just 20 years of students who are going or want to go to a post-secondary institution. Meanwhile, the number of Canadians who are between the ages of 25 to 34 and have a bachelor's degree went from 24% in, you know, 2000 to 42% in the year 2020. And you know, Michelle was talking about how hard it is to get in. Her story in McLean's outlines some of that as well. For instance, the Queen's Smith School of Business, just to get into that program, they get 9,000 applications. They've got 500 spots. That is incredibly competitive there. McMaster University has a health sciences program that is really popular. They get 5,000 applications for that health sciences program, and they admit fewer than 300 of those students every year. I mean, that's crazy. And I know that the software engineering program at the University of Waterloo is also incredibly popular. Uh, It's also very well known. Students have, if they have a 95% average or higher, and you would think, wow, that's great. That student can, you know, write their ticket anywhere. That student still has a less than one in three chance of being admitted to Waterloo software engineering program. I mean, those are just crazy statistics. And that's just part of from Michelle's story in McLean's magazine that talks about why so many, not just parents, but students are turning to these university admissions consultants to try to, you know, get some help for navigating the process, trying to figure out which schools, how many schools to apply for, uh, and really where to go, how to figure it all out. It's becoming harder and harder to do that. If you want to weigh in, I would love to hear your story on this, simi at cknw.com.